0: This podcast was recorded live at SeedCamp's People Summit. One of the things that has come up time and time again is how do you scale a company's workforce? Hiring a lot of people is difficult. Organizing a lot of people is difficult. And so the People Summit focused around some of the key themes on how to make that
1: really work well.
0: Our guest, Myron Yakovsky, who's a senior engineering manager, hailing from GitLab, has seen this firsthand. He's seen their workforce scale from very few people to 67 locations around the world and over 1,200 people as part of the team. It's a largely distributed workforce, which complicates matters. And in this session, featuring an inspiring introduction by Ben Gately, CEO and co-founder of Charlie, he goes into some of the key themes that has made GitLab be able to scale the way it does. He covers things like hiring policies on the one extreme and on the other extreme, how to synchronize work when done asynchronously stay tuned and take notes
1: my name is ben i'm ceo at charlie hr and we're uh, we're very lucky and very proud to be a seed camp company and i was thinking back to when we were out four years ago raising money for the first time and you you sit in these really nice boardrooms and you're pitching and all the questions are about product market fit or growth or um engineering or technology and no one ever fucking asks you about people they never say do you know how to have a disciplinary conversation with a person or have you ever had to deal with a mental health challenge in your organization what's your views on maternity and paternity leave should it be full equality across men and women no one has no one asks you those questions no one has those conversations with you then they give you a bit of money, and you start building your team, and you realise very, very quickly that running a business is really, really difficult—like really, really, really difficult—and it's really difficult ultimately because of people. People are, to me, the most amazing thing about running a company. It is an absolute privilege and a joy uh, to get to work with the people that I get to work with every day, but they're also really hard because they're emotional, they're non-logical, and they are difficult to always understand and see the context and see the reasons that are driving behaviors in the office. And so I hope what today is about, it is about helping us all to prepare a little bit more for, for those challenges, right? And there are many things that I love about Uh, this area of London and all the amazing technology companies, uh, that sit around here. But one of the things I don't love is, um, sometimes our ability to be really vulnerable and to be really honest with each other, right? Often I go to networking events and everyone tells me that they're absolutely smashing it. They obviously can't be all smashing it because most startups fail to some degree. So someone's lying. So I hope that today we get to share between each other, uh, what are the things that are going well? What are the things going, going badly? Like what are your learnings? How did you solve that problem? How do you solve that challenge? Because ultimately the challenges that you're going through are probably the same, uh, as the challenges that you're going through. Um, because when we get it right, it can be amazing. Getting your people right can be the difference between a business that attracts insane talent, retains those people over a long period of time, and has everyone glued together, performing at 110% of their ability. And when that happens, it's an incredibly beautiful thing to see. So that's our goal. That's what we're going to try and get to. I'm going to introduce our first speaker uh, for today, Uh, Maren, who um, was the the first engineering hire at GitLab. And uh, we're going to talk about distributed teams um, and how you do that, how you scale that. something I'm super interested in and have absolutely no idea about. Um, So let's give him a round of applause and get him up here.
0: Thanks, Ben, for the introduction. Um, Like Ben said, uh, I'm a first hire at GitLab. And today I'm going to be talking about how we work remote and what kind of challenges we uh, encountered while um, growing. I'm a senior engineering manager for the infrastructure department. Um, It's uh, really funny to say that, given that some eight years ago, I was the department doing everything, not only infrastructure. Um, Now, um, I'll tell you more about GitLab. Uh, GitLab is a DevOps platform, complete DevOps platform served as a single application. Uh, We enable teams to collaborate on development, operations, security, And ultimately enable them to ship their product faster to market. So I'll give you a bit of a history about GitLab. So 2011 is when the open source project started. So this was no company, just an open source project pushed out to public. In uh, 2012, GitLab.com, the company that was intro to the new GitLab that we currently have was created, and that is the time when I also joined uh, the company. And now, going to 2020, we raised 400 plus million in funding, and we have more than 100,000 organizations using GitLab, and uh, we've been continuously um, voted as a best CI product out there. We are now at nearly 1,200 people, um, and we are distributed around 67 locations around the world. And I can stand here for a good two to three hours and tell you everything I like about working at GitLab. Um, But I'm going to talk about a couple of things that I find to be most interesting to me. First of all, we don't have a single office for these 1,200 people and all those pets that you saw. And the second thing is that we do everything out in the open and public. So today, I'm going to talk about mostly about the zero offices part. Um, but I also want to give you an idea of how this came about. We didn't congregate together and they just say, let's do this revolutionary new thing that no one is actually doing um, back in 2012. So. The reason why this came about was that I lived in Serbia at that time. That's where I am from. And Sid, who is the CEO of GitLab, lived in Utrecht, the Netherlands. Um, when Dimitri joined the company the, as a co-founder, he lived in Kharkiv in Ukraine. Which meant that it was a bit hard to commute and given that we had zero euros on our bank account, uh, we couldn't just relocate, it was really difficult. Also, we didn't even know whether the idea is going to work, right? Like we were going against some of the biggest companies uh, in the space at the time, GitHub, Atlassian, and everyone was telling us that we are insane. Why are you doing this? This makes absolutely no sense. And we still did it. So this came out of necessity. Remote work, zero offices, came out of pure necessity. Our working day was simple, no commute, obviously. Um, We were three employees on a team call, as we called it, which was a conference call. At that point, Google Hangouts. Google Hangouts used to be able to support three callers at the same time. Um, Our every day started the same. 8 a.m., the team call discussion about work. We have 45 minutes to hash out any details that we have for the rest of the working day. And when we finish the call, everyone goes out to do their tasks. Great. Next day, repeat. We have a day cycle, basically, if you need to discuss something. Uh, You jump on a call here and there. But mostly, we spend um, our working time that way at the beginning. The first scaling problem of this workday, we saw when we added only one employee more. So four people in total, mid-2013. We realized that when we are in that video conference, only two out of four people usually interact with each other. Which means that 50% of our company is not doing anything for 45 minutes. Or doesn't even understand what the other people are talking about. So that didn't really work well. What also didn't really work well is that we really did have different habits. So Dimitri, who is the co-founder, he really didn't like getting up at 8 a.m. He really did not. He was a shell of a person there in the call. Um, Also, I had to go to gym at some point, not anymore, but at that point, yes. Um, so I was kind of always looking at my clock. And um, it just ended up not working for us. Not That was the least of our problems. The bigger problem was that a lot of context and a lot of great ideas that popped up in those conversations got lost as soon as we shut the call off. So we made a judgment call to remove the business, the work talk, in the 45-minute discussion that we had, because we also wanted to get to know each other. Given that we were all living in different locations, the fourth person was also in the Netherlands, but in a different city, um, we, um, we didn't know each other well. And in order for you to work well with your colleagues, you actually need to know them. You need to know what makes them tick. The other the other thing that was really important, that was a, a great move on our part now, it shows, um, is that we decided to write every discussion down and come to the call um, completely free of thinking about work. And every other discussion that needed to happen around that was taken um, um, in one-on-one calls, basically, between the folks who were discussing things. So... This is where things started changing completely for us. 2015 is when we decided to join Y Combinator. There were many reasons for that, and uh, find me after this talk to discuss that if you're curious. Um, But what was really important uh, and really interesting for that uh, period of time was, by the way, this photo here is obviously from the show, but we have almost identical photo from this time, when we actually went to uh, stay in Mountain View for three months during the program. So at that point, there was already nine of us, which means that from 2013, when we had four people and we, when we decided to change the way we do work, up until 2015, when we doubled in size, everything functioned. So we had very little scaling problems when it comes to uh, our working habits, um, and this time was actually a great test of uh, our work habits, our uh, just the way of us functioning as, as humans, um, and it was a, I'll tell you a great challenge overall. Overall, given that. Only eight of us were on site, so only eight of us were staying in that house. The ninth person, for some reason, decided to not join us. I don't know what was not really appealing about staying with eight guys that you never met before in real life in a house with three bedrooms only and two bathrooms. I'm really, really unsure about that. Um, but those three months actually exposed a lot of different challenges that we had. First of all, the number of interactions skyrocketed. We spent a lot of times together, which meant the ideas were just flowing. And it's great when the ideas are flowing, but in order for an idea to become something, you actually need to act on it. If you don't write it down, if you don't do something about it, it's like it never happened. Um, our complexity of the product already started growing as well, which meant that um, all those great ideas, with the complexity of the product, we were struggling. We were not able to keep up. Um, and not to mention that the ninth person who was staying in uh, back home in, uh, in the Netherlands, um, one day he actually called me and said, what the hell is happening with you guys? It's like you're on drugs. One morning you tell me I need to do this, and then when I wake up the next day to open up my laptop, you decided not the second thing, but the 15th thing. Like you spent the whole day changing your direction, and you didn't even give me this information. I just came to read that something has happened. Um, another thing that was really interesting during that time was that in our interactions with customers that we had there in uh, in California, um, and obviously investors during that time, was that... Everyone had an expectation of an office. Whenever you go into a conversation, people say, all right, when, where are we going to meet up? Where is your office? Investors specifically. We actually had investors tell us, we do not want to invest in a company that does not have an office. We need to know what we are buying. What we realized then, though, was... If investors ask you, you need to have an office because I need to buy something, you make it happen, right? Um, Actually, there is something more important that investors care about, and that is cost saving and money. So, the way we explained why this will work was, first of all, our hiring pool is way bigger than any of our competitors can do. We hired globally, and proven by the fact that eight people in in that room, there was no one living in the same country. We had a person from Ecuador, Romania, um, California, the Netherlands, Serbia, and so on and so on, um, which meant that we could show directly that this actually functions. We've been existing for three years already, we have a product that is becoming competitive. Um, but we still can make it work with people hired across the globe. When we explained what our expenses are, a lot of investors started saying, "Hmm, okay, I, I'm kind of interested now." Uh, our expenses, our biggest expense to that date was that house that we rented in Mountain View. Everything else was laptops and just the general things that you have when you need to work. Um, the commute costs, um, people seem to forget that there are large costs in commuting. Not only money-wise, but human-wise as well. When you come to an office after an hour and a half of commute or two hours of commute, you're not going to be as productive as when you start your workday when you are the most productive. right? And another thing that was um, really interesting to the investors was, that we could pay the local rate to our employees. Um, You can ask me later how much I earned at the beginning of GitLab working in Serbia, a country outside of the European Union, Um, you'll be amazed. Um, But that was actually a good pitch for the investors because it showed them that by expanding our hiring pool and keeping the cost low, uh, office all of a sudden doesn't become a problem. all of this is great, but now let's talk about how we get stuff done at GitLab. Everything we do code, issues, plans, discussions are written down and public. That is the second thing I like about this. So that means that everyone inside of the company, but also outside of the company because of our uh, public approach, can contribute to our discussions. Also, code even our proprietary code if they want to. We made sure that the contribution process is the same for everyone, whether they are inside the company or outside of the company, which means that uh, we don't have the overhead of thinking about who is an employee, who is not. You just have one process for everyone, and everyone needs to follow the same thing. We have over 2,000 contributors contributing to GitLab every month, which is actually ever uh, in the whole uh, period of time GitLab existed, um, which means that even when we were only 10 people, we had hundreds of people contributing to our product that were not even employed by us, which was a great asset, great jumping uh, point for, for the company. And we realized that being open is really, really powerful for us. I know that some of you are not Uh, um, public, fully public, but I'm going to just tell you about one of the two production incidents we had that changed how we perceived the world, from our side at least. One of my engineers deleted the production database, and instead of that becoming uh, a huge problem for us, it became, I wouldn't call it a PR stunt because it was not meant to be that, but we decided Our recovery, figuring out how to get the database up, was really interesting to not only us, but to the people who contribute to our code. So we live streamed our efforts and that became, to this day, one of the greatest things um, of uh, running a company like GitLab. Because even to this day, I get questions about uh, how did this actually work? What was this prepped? What, what happened actually there? So this opened up a lot of doors for us uh, because we also had uh, a lot of hires uh, coming directly from, from this uh, incident. We also open sourced majority of what we do. Um, everything that we can legally open source or uh, make transparent, we, we do. And you can find all of this information in our handbook. So if you want to understand how GitLab makes any product decisions, you can go to this page. There is a whole process written out. You can cherry pick what works for you. Do you want to see what kind of vacation policy that our company has? You can check it out there. Maybe something uh, looks uh, good to you as well. Our hiring policies, all of it is written out. Not to mention that... You can also understand how much will you potentially earn if you join the company. We have a compensation calculator, which is completely uh, transparent, and everyone can uh, check out uh, where they are in the, in the compensation range. Okay, this was not a product placement for GitLab. Uh, this was just, I think, something that uh, is important for the next section. We have a couple of things, more than four things, but there are four things that definitely make this uh, possible. We make sure that all of the work happens async. Everything is written down. I've mentioned that multiple times, but it is extremely important for remote teams. The reason for this is there is no Overhead, communications overhead, when a new person joins the team or the company. They know where they can find the information. They can reread the whole discussion that happened. And they can understand why certain decisions were made even years after. To this day, I'm showing an issue I created when I was uh, coding still. um, Some four or five, five years ago now actually. Um, where up until 6 a.m. I was trying to get something up and running, and I wrote down all of the challenges I've encountered. And the reason why we we abandoned that part of the product is clearly written down there. So every time now someone asks me, why is this not uh, in our product, I link them to the issue, and they can clearly see it. So even five years later. Another thing that is extremely important is knowing what your single source of truth is for this information. Having everything written down doesn't matter much if you have this across millions of documents. Not not even millions, like five documents is enough for you to lose your track. So our whole company and everyone who looks at our company knows where to go to find information. Like I said, the handbook. So if you are in the sales department and you want to know what the engineering is doing, you go to the handbook, you search the term you need, you find the information, click on it, and you get what you need there. And you also know who you can reach uh, reach out to. So with now 1,200 people that we have, this became extremely crucial. I don't know 60-70% of people anymore. Um, especially because we keep hiring 40 people a week, so it's really hard to keep up. Um, but knowing that department changed or that someone changed, um, actually not knowing that is um, um, important as well, because I can just go and search what type of work I need to do, and uh, I can find it there. We also don't wait for cons- consensus. Consensus. This is one of the big dangers of um, growing fast. You're going to slow down if you continue waiting for someone to make a decision. Decision making at GitLab is really quick. We only have one um, expectation. One expectation is that if you are making a two-way door decision, meaning if the decision is reversible, just go and do it. If the decision is not reversible, you better try to get at least exposure to what you're trying to do, if not consensus. Get most of the stakeholders that could be touched by the decision involved so they at least understand what is happening. So when I say we don't wait for consensus, I really do mean that. I have, what now, 12, 14 people reporting to me. If they were to wait for me... For every decision that they need need to make, I wouldn't be talking with you today here, It's right? Like I would have to be there continuously, um, responding to their queries, and we can, we have also a concept of direct responsible individual. In any decision making, whoever is made the DRI, they are ultimately the ones making the judgment call there. So you can have all the discussions that you want. But ultimately, the DRI makes the decision. And just to paint a picture here, the DRI is not the person who has the highest rank in the discussion. The DRI is the person who is actually executing the job. So, in certain cases, for example, um, in my team, I wouldn't be the one making a decision. I would be the one contributing to the decision, but my engineer would be actually executing the task. So they can make a judgment call whether they should go one way or another. The second part that is really important is that everyone can contribute. Every single person at GitLab can propose changes to everything. We have uh, multiple ways of doing that. I'm going to cover a couple of them uh, later on. But whether you're in sales or marketing or engineering, you can share your experience with the people you're working with. Now, whether they're going to accept that or not depends on the the DRI, Directly Responsible Individual. But you can contribute to this. And the handbook I mentioned, the single source of truth, everyone is contributing to that inside and outside of the company. So our chief financial officer, people who are usually tied into Google Sheets or Sheets in general, Are actually committing to our handbook. This is a commit graph of of our uh, CFO. So they actually are expected to update the handbook to make changes um, and work inside of the platform that we created for them as well. So this is really, really important because if you don't, if you isolate things, if you isolate decisions and if you don't accept outside uh, feedback, um, there is a chance that you are going to create a small little world within the company, and um, you will not going to get the benefit of multiple sets of eyes uh, on the topic in question. This one is really often overlooked, the balance of uh, work and life. We do have unlimited time off, and the unlimited time off is not a gimmick, it's not a marketing uh, um, tool that we have. You actually can take unlimited time off during the year. Um, you can take three weeks consecutive without uh, giving a heads up to anyone. You can just go to your manager and say, "Any three weeks off. You're out. If you need more than three weeks off consecutively, you actually have to talk with HR and explain to them why you need more than that. But in general, we don't count days. We don't count hours. We also ensure that Folks, take actual time off. 2018 was a very dark year for me, but it all made sense when I looked into it a bit more. I actually only took a couple of days off the whole year. So I was so much inside of the work that I didn't even consider that my private life completely um, took a hit. And ultimately, my performance also took a hit because the balance was off. So, like I said, we are not tracking hours, we are only measuring results. So, if we give you a task, or if you get a task uh, created for yourself, what is really important is that when you set a date and when you say I'm gonna deliver it in that time, you actually achieve it. Whether you're gonna spend an hour working or eight hours working, it's completely up to you. One of my engineers is incapable of waking up before noon. Trust me, tried everything. But what I realized when we actually had uh, a team on site was that he works completely differently to myself or other people I've uh, seen so, uh, so far. He takes an hour to, I I don't know actually what, like he looks at his laptop, like he doesn't do anything, he just looks at his laptop and maybe scrolls something, and but then all of a sudden he puts his headphones, spends two hours typing vigorously, commits, review gets done in a couple of minutes, he's done. So he spends a couple of hours of actual work every day, but everything around it is a ritual for him. So this is only the thing we are looking at. And finally, bonding. Bonding is extremely, extremely important. So we still have our daily company call. It used to be called team call, if you remember, the three of us uh, sitting talking about work. Now it's called a company call. um, And we have a bit of a ritual around the company call. It is always at a certain time, every day only gets canceled for um, outstanding events, holidays, Christmas, and our company on-site. But the the general uh, concept still remained the same, which was announcements from the company side. So, something really important that you want to raise the visibility to the whole company. Hey, we are doing something here. Go look here. Those type of announcements. Or... This person received a bonus or a promotion. Congratulations. Once that official part of the call ends, we, have, we are now using Zoom. We tried many, many tools over the years. We ended up on Zoom at the moment. Um, once the official part of the company call is done, we have, those, uh, we, we have a thing called breakout sessions, which group people, um, certain number of people in a room And you're expected, not expected, you can contribute to just general chit chat. Uh, We try to have some topics uh, to to get the conversation going, but um, it's all free-flowing. So it's still interacting with with each other and understanding who your um, person on the other screen is. When you don't have an office, you also miss out on uh, real-world interaction, like... I have with you now. Marina was uh, telling me that I could do this over, um, what was it called? I forgot. Happen. Yeah. But uh, what I find really interesting, in, especially if this type of events, is everything that goes around the, the presentation I have right now. Um, we found that getting the company once a year together in a single location, changes the dynamics throughout the year. And what we also heard from people going to the company on-site is I had one week of you and I'm fine. I'll, we'll just interact through Zoom and we'll just interact with documentation. One week is fine for now. We can grab a coffee maybe at some point in time. It's not a bad thing per se by the way. <laughs> it's just that we have a seven-day on-site in a location in the world. Um, and when you have a lot of people around, it, it gets a bit intense, it gets overwhelming. This one was done in Crete uh, with, I don't know, we were 200 people then. We have the next on-site in Prague in three weeks. We're going to have 1,000 people flying in to Prague. Last one was in New Orleans, before that we did one in South Africa, but it was something that bonded us because, um, again, I still remember um, an event where we were in a bus in South Africa going to the, um, I forgot the the name of the place we were going, but someone screamed, oh, there is a whale, it turned out to be a stone. So we had a really good laugh about it, and uh, that person cannot... uh, Leave that off, uh, actually. So, those type of interactions are really, really important when you don't actually have an office. We also have a policy called, um, oh, how is the policy called? Hmm, I forgot how the policy is called. But, in any case, you can actually meet with your colleagues and the company is going to re- reimburse you for the trip. So, if I decide to go to New York, where we have, I think, 10 or 15 people now, I can fly there, meet with them, and for each person I meet, I can um, expense $150 off my trip. So, the image you're seeing here in the background is two of my colleagues actually went uh, on a trip around the world by going to places where we have people in. Working at GitLab, and they actually went through the whole world that way in six months. Um, they didn't pay that much money. The most expense they had was on food and some accommodation. So it's it is, it is a really important aspect of socialization because it also allows you to have a one-on-one with folks. I'm going to use another example. I'm going to use another example with my team. Um, last year, a completely new team I built, we had an onsite in the Netherlands, five of us, it completely changed the dynamics of our work going forward. We knew each other before that, we interacted in our company calls, on sites, and so on, but being in the same room and working towards uh, resolving the same problem uh, for those four or five days we spent together, actually changed the dynamics completely for us. So that part is also really important. So in summary, make sure that you communicate async when you're working in this fashion. Um, it, allow, it includes, invites people into conversation <coughs> and allows people from whichever time zone they are in to contribute to the conversation. And don't, uh, they, they don't feel left out. Ensure that everything is written down. I repeated that so many times, but it is the crucial aspect of working remote. Ensure that you always know where you need to go to get your information. If you're going into a meeting, you want to have a Google document or whatever else you're using attached to the meeting, so that all of you in the meeting know where the notes are going to be taken. So once you take the notes, you also will know where to place the outcome of those uh, meetings. Everything is up for discussion. If you shut off discussion, you shut off collaboration, you create silos, and ultimately that is not going to work as you scale up.